Good morning. My name is Wes McCain. I'm the senior pastor here and one of the elders. And uh, I just want to say how much I love our congregation and our people here. I love you dearly. And I'm thankful the Lord has given, uh, given y'all to me. And, uh, and so I'm just constantly thankful for that. I'm also thankful on behalf of my family. I know many of you have experienced loss. Um, uh, just as you think about Memorial Day and think about maybe you've had a loved one who's passed in serving our country. And I just want to say that I am sorry and um, I'm thankful for the courage and bravery of many of our servicemen and women in this country. Um, I, I'm just, I'm thankful to live in this country. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to live in this country and I'm blessed to know that there are many people in our country who showed bravery and honor so that we could enjoy the, enjoy the privileges and benefits of the country that we live in, religious liberty, things like that. I'm just so thankful for that bravery and honor. And so on behalf of my family, I want to thank, thank those who have given their lives and the families who have, who have experienced such a thing. If you're with us this morning, uh, we are working our way slowly but surely through the book of Exodus. And we have made our way to Exodus, to the end of Exodus 22 into 23. And so if you would find your place in your Bible in Exodus 22, starting in verse 28, and we will read through 23, verse 9. And once you arrive there, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, you, you don't own one, you've never had one, we'd love to give you one of those. You can take one from the back or you can have one from more under your seats. That's our gift to you because we here at Crosspoint Baptist Church believe that uh, this is God's Word given to us and we need it desperately. And so uh, we want you to have a copy of that as well. Exodus 22, starting in verse 28, and we'll read through 23 verse 9 it says this you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me you shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep seven days it shall be with its mother on the eighth day you shall give it to me you shall be consecrated to me Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right." You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Let's pray. 
God, we come to you this day thanking you for your glory and majesty, God. You are worthy of all honor and praise and glory and affection, God. And we thank you for the grace and the the benefits that you've given us in your Son, Christ Jesus, the salvation that we've experienced. And I I just again want to thank you for also the benefits that we have as Americans living in this country. That God, you raised up men and women to serve our country in such a way that it cost them their life, God. Their bravery and their gallantry, oh God. That they went so that we could enjoy things that they may never even get to taste or experience themselves. And so I just want to remember this weekend, God, this day, those who, the fallen heroes, God, I want to thank you for them and I want to thank you for their families, God, who even may still be mourning the loss. God, I thank you uh, just for uh, your people. Thank you for the love and support that they show to one another. And God, I pray right now, um, pray for Wendy Schof and the loss of her mother this past weekend, that God, the church, would wrap their arms around her as she, as she grieves over the loss of her mother, God. But she does not grieve without hope, for the Christian has their hope in Christ, who is our only hope in life and death and is the hope of resurrection, God. Lord, I pray that you would be with them this weekend. I pray right now as your spirit works in us, God, to help us understand your word and to apply it, to be convicted by it, to repent of where we have broken your word and disobeyed it, and that we would run to Christ, who is our righteousness, God. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, I'm thankful for our military. I'm thankful for fallen heroes and patriotism, the patriots who have gone before us and those who have given their lives for the benefits and the stability that we enjoy in our society. And it's, it's, it's made me even more thankful because as you've heard, as you've heard me say about Ecuador's government, just the instability of a government, right? And that we here get to enjoy stability because of the sacrifice of others that have gone before us. And I'm just reminded just reflecting on Ecuador's political, political turmoil is that how easy it is for a government or a society to be dissolved. I mean, in the matter of a day, the president of Ecuador dissolves a government. It's pretty difficult to do here, right? You can't just make a decision and dissolve a government. But you can just imagine what all brewed to that. Dishonor, injustice, inequity, unrighteousness, all those things operating within a society, within a country, oppression and bribery and lies, right? Thankfully, I think we can all say this, thankfully we don't have a king like that in God. Thankfully his kingship and his government aren't so easily toppled or dissolved, and they never actually will never be dissolved. They will remain forever. But until we get into the new creation, into the new heavens and new earth. Here, God's people are called to honor God, honor those He has put in authority over us, to seek justice and righteousness in our society, to not pervert it, to not oppress. That cannot be named among God's people. And so that's the main point what what Ben read out to us this morning, is that God is worthy of all honor because He is just and He is righteous. 
And so God's people must uphold God's honor and God's and preserve God's justice and righteousness in this world. That's, that's what the point of these verses here today and these laws and prohibitions are given that are given to Israel is upholding God's honor and preserving God's justice in our world. And that is our call today for each individual here who names the name of Christ is that each and every one of us are called to honor God and to uphold justice and righteousness in our lives. That's what we're called to do. So the first point that we'll be looking at in verses 28 through 31 is this. Upholding God's honor. Honoring God. Upholding His honor. And there's ways that we honor people in our own society. You know, I think, as we've said, Memorial Day, I think about the fallen heroes. And one of the ways that we honor fallen heroes or people who have served is through the Medal of Honor, right? And just looking at the history of the Medal of Honor, I think it was established in 1861. I, I believe Lincoln was the first one to give out, uh, to give out a Medal of Honor to, a, to an, um, one who was in the Navy, if I read this correctly. And this is the way that we, that we honor, acknowledge, or show our recognition of a person's bravery, of a person's, of a person's, person's gallantry, the courage it takes to sacrifice and put one's life on the line, right? And that that is an honorable thing for a person to do. And they are worthy of such honor, right? And now I ask you this, how much more so is the Lord worthy of our honor of Him? How much more so is He worthy of honor? Because of what He has done and who He is, He is worthy of the highest honor. And the way that we honor God is through how, how we speak, what we say, and how we act in this world. That is how we honor God. And that our speech and conduct should be characterized as holy. And so in these laws here in verses 28 through 31, God is warning Israel, prohibiting them in some sense, of ways that they can dishonor God or not honor Him as He is worthy of. And so the first thing that is said in verse 28 that He warns them, this is one way that you cannot honor God. He says, you shall not revile God. You shall not revile God. And revile is a word there that means to make light of, to make little of. So do not make little of who God is, for He is holy, and He is just, and He is righteous, and He is perfect. And so refrain from any way of speech or any way of action that says little or less of who God is and what He has done. And we see that this act is actually committed by people in Israel themselves. If you remember Eli's sons in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel 3, that they are just a ragtag group of, group of sons, right? They're, they're the priest's sons, right? They should be living like priests. You know what they're doing? They're not living like priests. They're taking and they're, they're, they're polluting the sacrifices. They're eating, they're eating the sacrifices on their own. And this is what God says to Eli. He says, and I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. Same word, reviling God, making little of him. That's what they did. They were eating, eating the stuff, doing all the stuff, or were carrying on with sin. And they said, God doesn't care what we do. Who cares? He doesn't see. He won't discover these things. That's making light of God. It's making light of him. That's reviling him. 
If you remember what Job's wife said, after all the things that happened to Job, what did she say for Job to do? Curse God. Revile him, right? Revile him. Just be done with that God because surely he doesn't love you or care about you. Revile him, right? But he doesn't. You know what he actually does? What's interesting in the book of Job, his wife says, curse God. And in Job chapter 3, verse 1, Job doesn't curse God. He curses himself. Curse would be the day I was born, right? He doesn't curse God. And so there are ways that we can speak in such a way to make light of who God is, to do things and act in certain ways that say God is actually not holy, that God is actually not perfect, that God is actually not just, that God is actually not sovereign, right? And what I would say to us, church, is that we may need to think more about this whenever we speak and act. Is this action making light of who God is? Is that we probably would be in a much better place before we, if we thought before we spoke or acted, we asked ourselves this question, does what I'm about to do or say bring God the highest honor and attention and glory? Does this demonstrate that God is worthy of honor in what I'm about to say and what I'm about to do? So, one of the ways that we cannot honor God is by reviling Him, making little of Him. Second way that we can do that is this, is not honoring or actually cursing the rulers that God has set over us. And this is what He's telling Israel. Don't curse those who I've set over you, rulers and people like that, judges. Do not curse them. And so the one way that we honor God is we honor God's authority that He's placed over our lives. This is what 1 Peter 2.7 says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Which at Peter's time was a very bad guy. He said honor him, right? Romans 13, it's like submit to the governing authorities because in submitting to them you are submitting to God and his will. He's placed them over you. So don't curse them. Don't do wrong to them, right? And I know... We see in the life of David that he actually operates by this principle. If you remember in David's life, in 1 Samuel 24, David had numerous, numerous opportunities to kill Saul, right? Man, Saul was using the bathroom in a cave, right? And David was right there and could have easily taken Saul's life. And his men, David's men, come out and say, why didn't you do it? You had, you had him. You had him. And you know what David says in 1 Samuel 24, 6, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my, out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Is that God has established Saul as the king of Israel. Who am I to go against and kill and revile and curse the one that God has set in authority over me? Paul actually quotes this verse Exodus 22, 28, don't curse a ruler of your people when in, in Acts 23, when he's before Ananias and he calls, he calls him a whitewashed tomb, right? A whitewashed wall. And then one of the guards slaps him across the face saying, do you not know? You, you can't speak to him like that. And Paul says, I did not know that he was, I did not know that he was the priest. 
because I know not to curse a ruler that God has set over me. He quotes Exodus. Paul's trying to obey this. He knows not to do that. And so, one of the ways that we honor God is honoring, honoring the people God has set, set over us. Now, let me just tell you this. In our, new, in our day today, you watch any news outlet on TV, and they make their money off of insulting, mocking, cursing, complaining about the leader's on the other side, right? I mean, that's what, that's what news outlets make their money on, how terrible the other side is, how deplorable the other side is, how, how disdainful the other side is, right? I would say this, do we sound just like them? Does the church sound just like CNN, Fox News, MSNBC? Do we sound like them? We complain about our leaders, we mock them, we ridicule them, we insult them. We curse them, right? What Paul would say is this. One way you honor your leaders is that you pray for them. That's one way you honor your leaders. 1 Timothy 2, for, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Yeah, you can be like everybody else and you can get on the bandwagon of mocking them and insulting them and praying for them, but that makes no distinction from the unbeliever and the Christian. Christians should say, yeah, there's a lot of injustice in this world and that's why I'm going to pray that they would enact justice right now and that they would do righteousness right now. We honor the Lord by not reviling Him, by not cursing the leaders that He set over us, and the next one that comes up is this, verse 29, that we honor the Lord by giving Him the first and the best of our offerings. It says, do not delay to offer the fullness of your harvest. And He says, give the firstborn of your sons, consecrate these things to me. Give them over to me. Right? Don't withhold from God any of these things because everything is the Lord's. And he is worthy of all honor. And so he's calling them, give the best of your first fruits. Give the best of these things. And actually, Israel falls by the wayside in this sin, actually, later on. This is what Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, this is what he condemns them for. He says, you offer lambs that are blind to me. You offer, you offer blemished goats and things like that. And he, here's his indictment on them. He says, your governor wouldn't even accept this kind of sacrifice. Why do you think I would? You think less of me is basically the indictment on Israel. Is that you are not offering your best to me. And God says, one of the ways that you, all, you honor me is you offer your best to me. Not your second helpings. And not only that, is that he says, don't withhold these things from the Lord. Don't withhold these things. And we see that in the Bible where people get things and they are to offer it to the Lord and they withhold it. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. You remember? They sell some things and what happens? They keep some for themselves, right? They keep some and they withhold it from the Lord when they were supposed to give it to the Lord. Does anybody remember what happened to them? They died. God struck them down. And what what is said to them is that they lied to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5 by withholding these things. So not offering your best or withholding from the Lord, this, these are ways you dishonor God. 
And let me just ask this, church. In a in basically purely agrarian society that Israel's living in, how tempted do you think an Israelite must be to withhold the best of his animals and agriculture from the Lord? How tempting do you think that would be when the Lord says this, give the first fruits of your crop, give the best of your animals. How tempting do you think it would be Israelite to say, that's my, that's my best cow, that's my best goat, that, that, that corn is the best. I'm supposed to give it to the Lord? Sacrifice? How tempting do you think that would be for them? Pretty tempting, right? And let me just say this. I know that it's tempting for us to withhold things from the Lord. To not give the best things to the Lord. Oh, I got, I got to do this with it. I got to do, I, I, I got to plan for this. I got to wait for this. I got to pay for this. I got to do these things. I know that we even feel this I feel it in my own heart. You know, when we give tithes and offerings. Oh, not this month, next month. I've got to pay for all these things. I... But what we're ultimately saying is this, and this is what God's getting at in offering, is that when we give offerings the best and not withholding anything, we're saying, look, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this later. I don't know what I'm going to do. But I'm going to trust this. The Lord will provide. I'm going to give it to him now, the best of my first fruits, the best of my, my oxen, praying and knowing that this is, this is the Lord's ultimately, and the Lord will provide. Honor the Lord by giving the best, and ultimately that's our entire lives, is it not? Is that are you, are you honoring the Lord by giving everything that you have to him? Family, friendships, jobs, money, hobbies, whatever it may be. Our whole life is to be consecrated to the Lord. It's to be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, what Romans 12, 1 says. We honor the Lord by not reviling His name. We honor the Lord by not cursing our rulers. We honor the Lord by giving the best of our offerings. And we honor the Lord by our pursuit of personal holiness. This is what it says. You, bow, you shall be consecrated to Me. It, it's like the literal rendering here is, you be holy person. You be holy person. It sounds like a, you know, a, a caveman, right? You be holy, right? And that's what he's saying. You are to be set apart for me, totally and completely. Because our God is holy, us, we should be holy. That's what Ben read for us this morning from 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. You be holy because your God is holy. And we're to reflect that to the world. To be holy is to be set apart, to be distinct. Because that is what God is. We are to be holy. A holy people. That is the Lord's. And this is what, this is what we are to be. And what our struggle is today is that in our pursuit of holiness, we're trying to continually conform to the world. And let me just say this, those are contrary to one another. Conformity to the world is contrary to the pursuit of holiness. And it comes down to the question of this, church. Friends and family, it comes down to this question. Who do you want to be more like? That's what it comes down to. The question of holiness, or the question of conformity, question of the Bible comes down to this. Who do you want to be more like? 
If you want to be more like the world, then you cannot be holy. You cannot be like God. But if you want to be more like God, then you cannot be like the world. That's it. Who, what are your desires and your affections? Are they to be like Jesus? Because that is the ultimate goal of the Christian life, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's it. To grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Right now, I think it's really wise for us to ask each, each of us this question, to expose the things that are going on in our heart. Who do you want to be more like right now? Jesus or the world? What does your hobbies, what does your thoughts, what does your even prayer life, what, what does this all say? Who do you want to be more like? Jesus or the world? And this is what Paul warns us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Are you pursuing holiness right now? Are you pursuing to be more like Jesus? Are you wanting to be distinct in this world? Are you wanting to conform? You're either taking one or two paths becoming more like the world, becoming more like Jesus in your pursuit of holiness. And this is what he calls us to. We honor God by upholding his honor, maintaining it. We honor him in the way we speak, the way we act. We honor him by how we speak about our rulers and the people in authority over us. We honor Him in how we give our tithes and offerings and our gifts and our service to Him. We honor Him in our personal pursuit of holiness. But we also, one way that we honor Him is that we preserve justice and promote and maintain justice and righteousness in this world. And this is point number two. Preserving God's justice and righteousness. Outside the Supreme Court, many of you know that Lady Justice stands there. Right? And any, many of you probably already know, what is one feature of Lady Justice that is on her face? A blindfold. And it's pretty obvious what that means, right? That justice is blindfolded, meaning there is no partiality in justice. It's not determined by who stands before them, what they look like, what they think like, what they act like. Anything like that. Justice is justice no matter who stands before them. Now, you can probably with me kind of scoff and laugh at that where that's gone, right? Our systems fail to execute justice and righteousness with impartiality. But church, let me remind you this. God never will. God never will. Job 34 says this, Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. This is who God is, and this is what we hold on to, is that we see our, our structures failing us, but ultimately our hope is not in these structures, because they will fail us, right? But we hope in this God, who will never do wrong, who will never do wickedness, and he will never pervert justice. He will never do these things. And as a reflection of who he is, God's people should never pervert justice themselves in our own lives. You'll see this over and over again in verses 23, 1 through 9. 
is that in verse 2, pervert justice. In verse 6, pervert justice. And the word for pervert there is to stretch out. It's the same word, nathach, to stretch out. That's kind of an interesting kind of picture you get. Can justice really be stretched out? Right? No. Justice is justice. Righteousness is righteousness. Truth is truth. Right? Cannot be stretched out. And so we must refrain from any act that would pervert, subvert justice and righteousness in our world. And here are some ways that, that we can. This is some of the laws that were given to Israel that still apply to us today, I think. And ways that we can pervert or subvert justice in our world. We pervert justice and righteousness when we give a false report. Or false witness, tell a lie, a vain report. In order to misrepresent and change a verdict of some form, from a guilty to innocent. And I was just reminded this past week of how detrimental that can be to somebody when you lie or you pervert the truth in such a way to change the outcome of something. If any of you remember, just by show of hands, did anybody know the name Jim Elliott? And uh, End of the Spear, anybody heard of End of the Spear? The, the five missionaries that were, equi- you know, Ecuador's on my heart right now, Ecuadorian missionaries that went there and they were trying to reach out to an unreached tribe, the Warani tribe of Ecuador, who had never had contact with anybody outside of their tribe. They flew their plane around the jungle and they saw they having to get a sight of this tribe, the Warani tribe. And so one day they actually landed there, actually landed there, and they were able to make a connection and engagement with this tribe. And gave them food and different things. And ultimately, they were speared to death by the Waranis. And it all came about because of a lie. One of the Waranis, this is the story that was told after everything had come about, after Elizabeth Elliot had gone back there and shared the gospel with them and they came to faith in Christ, and she got the real story of what happened. One of the tribesmen of the Warani was done, doing something very, um, very, dishonorable in, in the tribe. And to deflect, to deflect the accusations that were coming at him, he said, those white men, they attacked us. And so he deflected it by a lie, and that ultimately led to the spearing and the death of Jim Elliot and Steve Saint and the three others. All because of a lie. All because of a lie. There's a danger in giving lies, vain witnesses, false reports, and the outcomes that that can have. This is why the Ten Commandments say, you shall not bear false witness, right? And we know of people, Christians, who have been falsely accused of things. Think about Acts, in Acts chapter 6 with Stephen, right? Is that he's on this trial, this kind of monkey court in some sense, if you call it a monkey trial, where these false accusations are being thrown out, and he ultimately gets stoned for them. But they say, we have not gone a day without him blaspheming the temple. Stephen's like, I've never even said anything about the temple. I'm just proclaiming Jesus Christ, right? False witnesses, it says there in verse 13. They set up false witnesses, right? They create these narratives and these lies to bring harm to another person. And this is exactly what this law is telling us not to do, because that perverts justice. That perverts righteousness. When we misrepresent people, when we lie about other people, right? 
or when we present our enemies in the worst light and us in the best light. Anybody like to do that? That's a temptation of all of our hearts. We love to present our enemies, the people that we dislike, in the worst light possible. And we love to present ourselves in the best light possible. I came across a Diedrich Bonhoeffer quote yesterday. If you don't remember, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian in Nazi Germany, was imprisoned for his faith by the Third Reich. And you know what he wrote from prison in a Nazi prison, prison camp? Here's what he wrote. Nothing we despise in other men is inherently absent from us. Okay, this guy is in a Nazi prison right now and is about to be executed. And he says, you know that basically those people who have put me in here as evil as they are, some of their evils are even within my own heart. And so when we complain about our enemies, when we complain about those people we dislike and talk bad about them, oh, man, they are so prideful. They are so arrogant. They are so evil. Just think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words. A little bit of that is not absent in us, too, which should keep us from bearing false witness about them, misrepresenting them, mischaracterizing them. Are, are our words charitable and accurate and faithfully representing people that we don't necessarily like or agree with? That's one way we pervert justice. Another way, we pervert justice and righteousness when we join hands with the wicked. Just look at this. There's so many ways in just these first verses. Is that It says, join hands in verse 1. Fall in with the many in verse 2. It says it again in verse 2. Siding with the many is that we pervert justice when we join in on the bandwagon, right? Regardless of what is right or what is wrong, regardless of what the truth is, we join in with the consensus. We join in with what everybody else is saying. If everybody else is saying it, it must be right. It must be true. It must be justice. It must be perfect, right? If everyone else is saying it, then regardless of what the outcome is, it must be just and righteous. Now, just listen to how that played out in Matthew 27 when the crowds have come together and say, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Was the crowds accurate right then? Were the people who were shouting that speaking the truth? No. But they gathered people together to go against Jesus. And the crowd chanted, let him be crucified. And Pilate gives in. Is that we pervert justice when we let the cultural pressures here to go with the many, to join hands, to fall in with all others. We pervert justice and righteousness like that. And the pressure to conform and follow the crowd is really strong in our day and age. Especially when we have a thing called cancel culture. That regardless of who the person is, regardless of what they've said, if 50,000 other Twitter and Facebook followers say it's wrong, then it must be wrong, right? It must be wrong. They must be shut up, right? I'm sorry, church. That's not how truth and that's not how righteousness and that's not how justice works. Sometimes, followers of Christ, in order to uphold justice and righteousness, it may actually require us to go against the consensus. It may actually require us to not be bandwagon people. It may require us to actually go against the crowd. 
And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what? Many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Is that true justice and righteousness aren't determined by the consensus. It's determined by God's word. And we shouldn't jump on the bandwagon with those just because it's what everybody else says. That's a way that we pervert justice. Another way we pervert justice is this. We pervert justice and righteousness when we show partiality for or against the poor just because they are poor, right? Is that the, just because they're poor, this is what it says in verses 3 and 6, don't be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. Oh, because he's poor, we're going to give him what he wants, and I, he's right. That's, that's justice. Or because he's poor, we're not going to give him what is right and just. That is partiality, and that is what God hates. And that is not true justice, and that is not righteousness. Is that determining justice and righteousness based off a person's economic status? That will determine who gets what. This is what Leviticus 19 says. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 1.17. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for judgment is God's. Who the person is, whether they have $100 million in their pocket or not a penny to their name, should not determine whether justice and righteousness happens, whether we do the right thing. James actually condemns this in the church. And James chapter 2 says that the church is showing partiality to the rich. They're welcoming the rich, but not the poor. Because they have nothing to contribute to us. They have nothing to give. Right? And unfortunately, man, I, I know my own wicked and sinful heart. I do these same things. Is that we make judgments of people based on maybe what they look like or how much money they have or how much money they don't have. So we make these same kind of judgments. Because they're poor, then they must have done it. Because they had these motivations to do this crime or whatever. Or because they're rich, they must be this. Right? Is that we base our judgments on people, not by truth, not by righteousness, but by how much money they have or how much money they don't have and whether they're guilty or innocent. And our hearts and our world struggles not to judge people based on statuses like that. And I would just challenge us, church. The church should be such a completely different place. Is that we don't look at what people have in their bank accounts to decide whether we're going to live or do right. We're saying we're going to live and do right no matter what, regardless of economic status. Next is this. We pervert justice and righteousness by withholding it from our enemies. This is the situation in verse 4 and 5 is that an enemy's ox or his donkey gets into trouble or it's under a great burden, and we see what's going on. And I, I think you all understand this, and this is obvious, but what would the temptation to be? You see a person who hates you, you see their, in, their ox under great duress, what are you going to say? <laughs> he got what he deserved. 
Maybe to put in a greater example, you see your enemy or the one who hates you, their car broken down on the side of the road, and you drive right past them. And maybe you laugh. Maybe you mock. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, hope he learned his lesson, right? We have this temptation to disregard and not do what is right and just for our enemies. And that's not justice either. That's not righteousness either. In actuality, what the church is called to, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, what does he say? You should hate your enemies and pray for their destruction? Did I quote that wrong? I did. What does he say? Love, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, that's completely different. So we change from wanting to see them destroyed, and we change from wanting them to see get the worst and not get what they deserve, but to love them. And man, how could we possibly uphold the justice and righteousness for those who hate us, for our enemies? That's not what they deserve. They deserve the worst. And what it means, church, is this. How can you show love to your enemies? How can you do justice for your enemies? How can you do righteous towards your enemies? Remember this, that you too were once an enemy of God. You were once an enemy of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Remember, how can you love your enemy to remember that you are an enemy of God and while you are an enemy of God, God loved you and sent His Son on your behalf. Remember that you are an enemy. We pervert justice next is by treating the innocent as though they're guilty. We treat somebody who's truly innocent, hasn't done any wrong, and we place the blame and the guilt on them. Oh, it's easy. Nobody will know. Maybe you feel this in your job and workplaces. Oh, it's easy to blame them. Like, they're, they're a screw-up in the first place. And see, everybody will believe if, if I say it was them. That is not doing justice. And this is what it warns. Don't, don't do evil. Don't, do, don't kill the innocent. Keep far from false charges. Why? Because God will not acquit the wicked. He will not do justice. So if you, if you, if we put guilt and put wrongdoing on somebody who is truly innocent, you know what that makes us? That makes us the wicked. And God will not acquit the wicked. He will not make right that. We pervert justice when we treat innocent as though they're guilty. And we pervert justice and righteousness when we allow money and pressure to alter our discernment and determination of what is just and right. And this is why there's given a prohibition about briberies. Briberies distort justice because it blinds our eyes to what it is. We're not clear-sighted anymore. I mean, just how many times have we heard in our world today, in our own society, about a politician or a leader who has taken money underneath the table Anybody heard that before? Or am I, I mean, my naive, right? And it happens. And it distorts evil. It perverts. It does evil. It distorts justice. 
It perverts it. And this is not like God. Listen to what Deuteronomy 10.17 says. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Look, He has justice and righteousness, and you can't distort it. You can't subvert it with some money or anything else. He's going to do it. And maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, well, I, I'm, I would never do what's wrong for money if somebody paid me off. But we would do wrong for much less, right? We would distort justice and righteousness for much less. Maybe public opinion has swayed you and will alter your decisions and determinations of things. Maybe not wanting to be wrong or being prideful, not wanting to be seen in a bad light. All these may influence you into do what is right. We see this in Jesus' own day that there was many in the synagogue who believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess Jesus as Lord. And this is what he says, because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is our biggest downfall, church, is that we, don't wanna, we wanna pervert justice and righteousness and truth in this world. Because of why? We're just scared. We're scared of people. As Ed Welch says, when we make people big and God small, we cannot let the glory that comes from man alter truth and righteousness and justice. Lastly is this. We pervert justice and righteousness by harming and withhold justice from those who look different from us. From Israel, it was the sojourner who may not be an Israelite. He might be a Canaanite or a Moabite who's just living among them. And they're saying, well, we don't have to do justice or righteousness for them. We don't have to uphold their rights. No. And what, what God reminds them is this. Hey, you need to uphold it because remember, you were once one of them. You were once a sojourner in Israel. It says it so beautifully. You know the heart of a sojourner. You know the experiences. You felt the oppression. You felt the blood and the sweat and tears rolling down your face when they were oppressing you and doing evil to you. Felt that. You know that. You know the heart of a sojourner. So why would you oppress them in return? Why would you do injustice to them when you experienced it yourself? It reminds me of what Paul says when we have a struggle to forgive other people. We say, they're man, I'm not going to forgive them. They've done something so bad to me that I could never forgive them or they are not worthy of forgiveness. Or they could never, they, they, they have gone so far beyond bounds. They don't deserve it. Well, Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Why should we forgive other people? Because we need to remember. Remember, you stood unforgiven and God forgave you in Christ. Church, God is true and just judge and He is worthy of all honor and to be held in honor and He will not pervert justice. He will not pervert righteousness in the end. He will execute it justly and fairly. He will not acquit the guilty. And this is what we hope for. We long for that day when the branch of the Lord, as Isaiah 11 says, will come and He will bring justice and righteousness into this world. Removing it all. This is what Revelation 19 is all about. When He comes on a white horse, swords coming out of His mouth. 
to get rid of the wickedness in this world. Isn't that such good news that we can hold on to? We may not see it right now, but it's coming, and we wait for that day. That's the good news. But there is bad news. And the bad news is this. We are the wicked. We are the ones who have reviled. We are the ones who have brought unrighteousness and done injustice in this world. We are them. We are them. So what what are we going to do? We're in this position of people who have not honored God, who have perverted justice and righteousness, and God will not acquit the wicked. What do you do? And the call this morning is this. Honor Him. Honor God. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 2. Now, now therefore, O kings, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. This morning, the good news is this. Jesus is coming to cleanse this world of wickedness and evil. The bad news is this. We're the ones who have committed the wickedness and evil in this world, and He will not acquit the wicked. The good news is this. Jesus is our righteousness, as Jeremiah 23 says. And this morning, you don't have to be on the other end of God's justice. You don't have to be on the other end of His righteousness. You can actually be in His righteousness and made right before Him this morning. Don't walk out of this room, please, in the dangerous position of dishonoring God. Because this is where we all are at, apart from Christ. What Romans 1 says. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. This morning, I plead with you, leave out of here honoring God through Christ Jesus and be saved from His perfect justice and righteousness. And if you've been saved by His perfect justice and righteousness, promote it and live it in this world. Let's pray. God, we love You and we thank You. God, help us in this time to do such things, to live justly, to live righteously in this world. And that God, we may reflect on who we were before Christ, unrighteous, not honoring you, dishonoring you, O Lord. Not only breaking your commands, but applauding those who follow suit in likeness. But God, in your divine mercy and grace, you met us in Christ. Let us sing, let us shout, let us proclaim that, God, that we have been saved by the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's in His name we pray these things. Amen.